Welcome to the Reverse Selling Podcast, where real estate agents, salespeople, and entrepreneurs come to learn the best tactics and strategies to grow their business. Hosted by the creator of the Reverse Selling Methodology, Brandon Morinan. My guest today, uh, we talk a lot about becoming a listing agent, but my guest today, not only is she a great mom, she's a phenomenal leader, and get this, she's cracked the code to scaling a buyer agent business. She's probably one of the only people literally in the country to do what she's done. Jen Davis has sold 225 homes working with buyers. So Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brandon. I'm super excited to be here. I love the buy side. I love it. I love it. So I'm excited, Jen, to share with the audience how you have been able to do this. You know, we were talking off air and I think a lot of the industry, you know, uh, whether that be from Gary Keller, it doesn't matter. Everyone talks about listings, listings, listings. Um, but you don't meet people like you that has been able to do what you've been able to do, which is scale a buyer agent business. And so before we jump into how you did that, give us just a quick uh, understanding of who you are, how long you've been in business, where do you work? You know, Give us a little background. Sure. So again, my name is Jen Davis. I am currently serving as the CEO of Holt Homes Group, which is affiliated with KW. Um, we are in Springfield, Missouri. And last year closed 538 units. So um, of those 538, we had six agents in production. So when we look at the way our team is built is we've got a lot of admin support, a lot of ISA or inside sales agents, lead generators um, support. So our agents are able to do a high transaction count. So we have uh, very few agents doing a lot of units. Does that make sense? So I love it. And, and I traditionally, I started out as our buyer's agent. So I've been on the team for eight years. Six of those years, I, I was our lead buyer specialist. I love it. I love it. And if you guys didn't get that, you heard that right. That was not a, a, a miscue. You did how many deals with six agents doing 500 and how many transactions? 538. So your per agent productivity is almost 100. It's very, very close. I mean, and you look at it and and so Brandon, you know, I know that you you're you're an expert in the industry, right? You you study different models, you look at all these things. When we did this, we also as a company were 42% profitable. Mm. So when we look at even though we're admin heavy, right? Or we have a we have lead generation um, support for our team, we're still within um, a high profitability for the size team that we run. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And and Jen, I have a team like that at my, my company. And I really, really believe this is the team of the future. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's the doctor model. That's what I call it, right? You've got the surgeon, but the surgeon's not um, taking blood, scheduling the patient, not doing any of that. Because traditionally, as you know, better than most, you know, the teams are, you know, 50 agents doing that type of production you have your agents focus on the highest dollar productive activities, and then you've leveraged everything else out. Is that right? That's exactly right. You know, it's a team dependent model, right? Our agents are dependent on the team for their admin support for a lot of their leads um, and for the way that we do business. So when we look at it, you're exactly right. I'm putting people in their strength zone. 
So if you're a great listing agent, I want you to work with sellers. If you're a great buyer's agent, I want you to work with buyers. Those are different personalities. And same goes with somebody that's an inside sales agent. If they want to be on the phone and their win is the, the connection with people for the short term, right? They don't necessarily want the long-term relationship of a listing or working with a buyer, that type of thing. We want people to be in those top activities because that's where, I mean, honestly, that's where the magic happens, right? That's everyone has a high love of their job. Um, they, they enjoy coming in. Um, they're making as much money as they possibly can. Cause when I look at those, you know, it's like the, the general brokerages, right? Like a lot of teams run like a general brokerage. When you've got 50 agents potentially doing 500 units combined, that's, they don't have a chance for a big life, right? Maybe right. the owner of that company has a chance for the big life, but those individual agents aren't selling enough properties to actually make a financial impact impact on themselves or on their family. It's a great point. And it's probably why, you know, most of those models don't have the longevity that your team does because you're right. I mean, if you're an agent on a team, you know, and you're selling, let's just, I'm just throwing a number out there, 12, 12 properties a year. I mean, yeah, the financial reward isn't that great. So the longevity of that person staying on the team or the, even the team staying together, it's not, it's, not, it's not very sustainable. And so an agent in your model, which I absolutely love, can come into your organization, have a real career, a real um, balance for life, have a massive income and really, really love what they do. Would you agree? I absolutely agree. You nailed it. I mean, when you look at, I'm in Springfield, Missouri, average sales price is low, right? Yeah. Yeah. You guys are selling like what? $50,000 houses or something? Basically. I mean, sometimes we get double wides, not just single yeah. wides. Um, but when you look at it, you know, our average sales price is $200,000. And so when, when an agent will say to me or a team lead from another team, they'll say, well, it can't work in my market. Guys, if it can work in my market, it can work in any market. If we can be profitable as a company and our agents can make six figures, it can it can work in any market. Yeah, so true. So, so let's go back. Okay. So I want to go back to when you sold 225 homes. They were buyers because again, everyone online and social media is talking about listings, listings, listings. You chose to scale the buyer side of the business. So first and foremost, how did that happen? You know, how, how did you decide to go down that path versus the traditional path of, of leveraging through listings? So I, you know, I have a great founder of a company, right? So Dan Holt is the founder of the company that I work for and now I'm, I'm running. Um, and when he recruited me to his team, it was very much, uh, he wanted an empire builder. And so when I came in, he was really the first person that ever looked at the buy side as not, or a buyer's agent is not a less than role, right? So he brought me in and, and it was, you can do anything you want. You can do anything you want with Enroll, and I'm going to let you build a team within a team. So I think that I have a healthy respect for the listing side, right? I know the listing side drives my business. I know that we need signs in the ground. I know that we need sellers that turn into buyers. I know how all of that works. 
But I think what I what I found the missing piece was, is that people weren't capitalizing on buyers. They weren't running it as a business. They were running it as a real estate agent, right? So yeah. on the listing side, I think a lot of listing agents, they understand the leverage piece of it. On the buy side, though, I think people become reactionary as a buyer's agent instead of being proactive, instead of running it like a business, building in the efficiencies and understanding the leverage piece of it. So I got into it because that was the role that I was offered. You know, Dan offered me the role as his buyer's agent. And the and I don't think either of us knew what 225 buy side units was going to look like, you know, in, in that very first meeting. And the way that we built it out was just the same as you would if you were a remaker on a team. It was, okay, what are my top activities as a buyer's agent? Well, top activities are lead generation, converting the lead, setting the appointment, getting a buyer brokerage or buyer agency agreement signed, finding the house. So you're showing houses, getting them under contract. And then, you know, all those are your top activities. If we look at that and we look at those top activities, well, what's the other stuff and where does that go? So the admin work, right? Like setting the showings, mapping where you're going to go, pulling the disclosures, all of those types of things. We looked at it and we were like, incrementally, we're going to leverage these pieces off of me. Love it. I love it. So, so let's, I'm going to unpack all that so we can okay. give everybody watching this kind of a step-by-step playbook. Sure. The first thing that you said, this is what like a, attracted me to you was when you said a buyer's agent is not a less than position. Traditionally in the industry, and I think you would agree, regardless of company, when, when you hear the word buyer's agent, you know, people's bias is towards a less than role. And you, I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing in the industry. I watched another interview you did with somebody else and she said the same thing. You, you have this brand of like, when you think of a, a scaled buyer agent leader, Jen Davis is it. That's it, period. So, so did you and Dan have that conversation? I remember you telling me the story and I've watched interviews of you guys. Did you have that conversation? Like, dude, this is, how did you come up with the, this is not a less than role? You know, I think it was in the way that he treated me. I think I often get, you know, people, I'll do these interviews and someone will say, I need a Jen Davis in my life. And I'm like, yeah. no, you need to show up like a Dan Holt, right? Mm -hmm. In order to attract talent, you've got to show up in a certain way and you also have to give opportunity. So, you know, the very first meeting, Dan a hundred percent was like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to build out the buy side. Did he know all of the steps? Of course he didn't. Nobody did. We didn't know how to get there. But what we knew was that I was going to have the autonomy to run the buy side as long as I was a culture fit, as long as I earned the opportunity. So tangibles and measurables that he put before me, as long as I hit those metrics, I got to move on to the next step. So the first metric was the you know the first year I was I was on Dan's team I had just moved over to KW I had been at another company first and I had sold 16 houses the year before joining Dan's team and he said I want you to sell 50 houses and I of course am like okay sure <laughs> sounds easy why not right right so I did. I mean, I ended up closing 49. Looking back, I've told you this before, I would have bought the darn other house. So right. to have hit goal, but I hit 49 and then we looked at it and that was a whole separate conversation of that was messy and it was hard. And there's also this thing within the industry that everyone's like, well, I mean, a good buyer's agent could do 35 to 50 transactions. And I'm like, 
how can that be? How can my only opportunity as a buyer's agent be that I can help 50 families at max? And then I either have to go into the listing side or Dan has to hire another buyer's agent. And then there's nowhere for me to grow. There's no opportunity for me. That's exactly right. I mean, that, that's, that's the norm. Yeah. So I think the conversation then was, he was like, what could we get rid of? What are those activities that you're doing? And so we hired an admin and that admin helped me with those activities that are non-dollar producing activities. And that year I jumped up to 72 closed by side units. And I'm kind of talking you through this because I want everyone to understand the thought process behind it was we didn't know what was going to happen next until we knew what the pain points were. And the reason that I do these types of, of you know, trainings or have these conversations is it was really hard. Like it was really hard. I had really hard years in here and I would like other people to avoid some of the, the pitfalls. I also want people that love to work with buyers to see that you don't have to be a listing agent. You don't have to move to the dark side, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I wanted to interview you so bad because your story is so unique and you're right. There, People like working with buyers and I think the industry has tried to force them. Like, that's a bad thing, you know, like buyers are liars, go to the listing side, you know? And so I, I would agree. You've got a great story. It's like that they're telling you that you have to sit at the kids' table, right? Well, you're not That's a real right. agent or you're not an adult just yet. Like you're going to sit at the kids' table at Thanksgiving until whenever we deem you an adult. Yeah. So, all right. So first year you do 49 deals. Mm-hmm. At this point in, in the story, you were by yourself, correct? No showing agent, no assistant. First year that was all Jen Davis, correct? Yes. And that was really before DocuSign or Loop. So, I mean, wow. I was signing all of the paperwork in person. Okay. Now- um, couple questions there. You know, you are a mom. One of the challenges working with buyers is buyers want to see houses nights, weekends, traditionally. How in the world? Because I work with a lot of, I have the fortunate to, uh, to work with a lot of females that have like this mom guilt, right? And how did you do that? How did you, 50 buyers, a lot of work. And you had tons of responsibilities as a mom. Walk us through how you were able to manage that. I I don't think I did very well that year. I mean, if I'm being transparent, I didn't get that figured out until about two and a half years into it where I was like, I'm missing it. You know, that year, I think my youngest was maybe two and had a ton of ear infections and, you know, had to get the tubes put in his ear and all that. And I felt, I felt guilty regardless of where I was at. I felt guilty if I was at home. I yeah. felt like I should be at work. And if I was at work, I felt guilty that I should be at home. And it was years later, probably a year and a half later, when I started utilizing leverage that I got to the point where I was like, you know, that old saying, be where your feet are, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm at work, I'm going to be a hundred percent at work. And if I'm at home, I'm going to be a hundred percent at home. And it was learning to set those expectations and I would, you know, it, it wouldn't be truthful to say that that all came organically to me. That, that was a learned skill of, okay, here, here are my priorities and here are the parameters in which I can work. And, and then I can start really dialing into what a schedule looks like or what a healthy balance would look like. So smart. And, and it's something you remind me of something I talk to all the agents in my coaching program about all the time, which is the learning is in the doing. You know, you can't sit here and plan and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do when I do 50 deals. No, to your point, you learned as you went. So, 
So you do 49 deals, then you get into year two. So the first step into scaling to 225 was hiring an admin. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, hiring that person and some of the things that you that you leveraged off to that person? Yeah. So, I mean, at that point, it was somebody to set showings for me. It was someone to print out the detail sheets. I mean, at that point, we were still, you know, utilizing paper folders and those types of things. And so she and I worked out what our system was. I am really clear on expectations with my team. So um, it was boiled down to how I liked the folder, right? I liked my information on the sure. left hand side and the buyer's information on the right hand side. And she, she would coordinate all those showings. Any person that's ever worked with buyers understands what it's like to get the call from a buyer that they want to look at four properties and you're trying to map it and you're trying to pull all the information you're coordinating with the sellers. She took all of that off. And so what would happen is she would get all of those things ready. When I had someone that was ready to make an offer, she would pre-type it out for me. So I would give her the terms of the contract. She would get it ready for me, get it prepped. And then I would meet with the client um, and get it signed. And then I would pass it to her. So she would handle scheduling inspections and walkthroughs and closings. But it was also nice to be in showings. And if somebody needed, say, covenants and restrictions or utility information, she was back in the office and had real-time access to all of those things. So my client care also went up. Those clients that normally would have waited for me to respond until eight o'clock at night right. with that information were getting it during the day. Smart, smart. So second year, you went from 49 to what did you say? 72. All right. And then what was the third hire? Third hire was help with lead generation. So about this point, most people will say, oh, I need a showing agent. And I would tell you, we'll get to that. Yep. Um, and the showing agent portion of it, you have to have a really strong pipeline to bring somebody into your life that you're going to pay mainly commission-based. Yep. You need to make sure that you've got that pipeline. So for us, it was a hire for lead generation. So what we call an ISA or an inside sales agent, they typically on the listing side are doing outbound dialing, right? So they're calling expires or for sale by owners or whatever they might be calling, yep. circle prospects. This person came in and was really handling the inbound leads. So okay. at that point, you know, if, if, if I, if, you know, clearly I was always 45% of the business. So we had a strong listing business. So any sign call that came in, any um, inquiry for a showing, anything like that, I was still fielding all of those calls. So the next step was really, we brought in somebody to handle the nurtures on the buy side. So I was really only working with a buyer that was, ready to go in the, in the next 30 days. Anybody else that was 30 days or beyond, the, the lead generation person helped me with. Um, she stayed in front of them. She made sure that they were going to use us when they were ready. And the thought was, instead of having these peaks and valleys, right? As a buyer's yep. agent, I'd have huge months and yep. then I'd have nothing. And then I have huge months and I'd have nothing. This really kind of was the first time where I was like, I've got a consistent business. I can make projections based on what I'm going to do month after month because this person is filling out this pipeline for me. Um, the same, the, at the same time, I added a coach. And I know that you coach people and, and you help them dial into what things look like or what inefficiencies are. And that was a game changer for me. I mean, those two pieces, having somebody that was outside my market center that could see things from a different angle um, really helped. And that year I ended up closing 110 buy side units. So it was myself, an admin, and then an ISA. 
love it. I love it. All right. So that's perfect. Now you get into your third year. Uh, things are going well, right? What was the next hire from that point that took you from 110 to what did you guys do your third year? So 110 was the third year. Oh, I'm the sorry. Fourth, yeah. Yeah. The fourth year was 182. Okay. So 110 to 182. This is a great story. Everyone's follow along. Uh, what was that next piece of leverage? Showing agent. All right. So let's talk about showing agents because everybody's talking about showing agents. Everyone loves them. So we call them showing agents or showing partners or field agents. We don't call them showing assistants. Right. No one wants to be an assistant, right? Yeah. So they're licensed agents. Um, and really what we looked at was if Dan was going to treat me as a buyer's agent as not a less than role, that's how I was going to look at the showing agent, right? Love it. Love it. Love it. So they were, that was the relation piece, the relationship piece leverage. I brought in Kathleen, who is still on our team. So it was January of 2016 and she came on board and we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, up until that point, my ego was pretty, pretty confident in the fact that no one would want to work with anyone other than me. Um, right. They wanted to hang yeah. out with me. And I was the only reason that we were selling that number of houses. Right. And then this thing happened where the ISA was like, Hey, I can't book you any more appointments. There's no more availability. Cause by that point I had my schedule figured out and I had my kids stuff figured out and I was unwilling to negotiate terms on my kids of when I was going to spend time with them. So the interesting piece is the reason I added a showing agent is because I was a ceiling for somebody else. Mm. I got to the point where it was, there was somebody in our organization that could not grow if I didn't do something different. So we added a showing agent and Kathleen came in and I didn't know what was going to happen. I wasn't sure if, you know, it, it would go well. I didn't know. I wasn't sure if she would sell as many houses as I sold. And what ended up happening is our lead gen team had two calendars to book. So Kathleen was busy and I was busy. And I think April of that year, Dan took 40 listings or something. And in May of that year, Kathleen and I put 36 buyers under contract. Oh my gosh. And it sucked. I mean, it <laughs> was hard. It was, think about the number of inspections. Oh my gosh. Walkthroughs, closings, showings. Oh, it was a mess. We had, we weren't prepared for it. We didn't have the trackers for it at the same time that our ISA goes on maternity leave. And it was like, what have we done? Yeah. That was when I hired the second showing agent. So I really only had one showing agent for that five or six months. Then we brought the second one in and then things kind of settled in. That was finally when I got predominantly out of showings, when I was able to just kind of step in and facilitate the buyer consult and then the negotiations. Wow. So, so what I'm hearing, Jim, more so than anything else is leadership. And here's why I say this, because you said... Uh, earlier in the interview, that before you start hiring these people, you have to have the business maturity to make sure that they are going to be have the opportunity. I think what so many agents see, Jen, and I think you would agree with this, is they love the idea of leverage, but they're they're only selling one or two houses per month, and they're like, "Oh, I would love to leverage and get out of showings and get my weekends back," but that's not the right time to do it. Would you agree? I do agree. They've not earned that right. 
That's I mean, right. And the right to do it. You, you look at it and you think if I'm going to have somebody come in and clearly a showing agent makes a smaller percentage than a buyer's agent does. If I'm going to have somebody come in, I need to make sure that they're selling a lot of houses per month because they're going to make money on the volume of business yeah. that they're going to do. And I was in an interview sometime one time and somebody was like, you know, why would you have two showing agents? Why not 10 or, or whatever? Yeah. I said, I'd really rather have two agents selling 10 houses a month than 10 house, 10 agents selling two houses a month still gets me to my number 20, but that's a different, that's a different leadership style. I now get to go deep with the people that I'm leading instead of being like a surface level with all of them. I love it. And that's what, that's, I mean, that's, what's coming out loud and clear. And I mean, you know, we don't have to get into too many details about income, but you look at the showing partner on your in your organization. I mean, their income is probably more than most age, solo agents because of the opportunity, the way you've built it. Is that right? It is right. You know, I think in their first year, they typically so median income in Springfield. Yeah, median income in Springfield is thirty five thousand dollars. I mean, okay. that's, that's sure. where I live, so totally different than your listeners. Sure. And they were making, you know, in the, in their first year, because I've done this now with four people, they made sixty five to seventy thousand dollars in their first year. Phenomenal. By, by year two, they're at eighty five to ninety thousand, and after year three, they're in six figures. They're showing property. I know. They have the fun job. Yep. They're not. They're not worried about lead generation expenses, the coffee, the light bulb works, contract to close. <laughs> I mean, this is what we're talking about, everyone listening. I mean, this is when you do things right. That's why we have Jen here today. And you uh, lead people from a servant's mentality. You give great opportunities for people. It's amazing. I would say on our in our team, that's probably the most highly desirable position on our right. team. Right. Makes total sense. And so... Now, is that to so so kind of circling back to the story? Is that where you were able to just get to that two twenty five? Is when you, it was you admin two showing agents? Yes. Yep. And, right. the, and then we had an ISA that was you know oh, that's right. legion that was helping, but we were there, and you know every year it got a little bit easier because once we knew what we were dealing with, once you have the system of right pass figured out and the tracking and inspection notices and timeframes and all those things for people that you've potentially only met one time. Once you have that figured out, it's just a system, right? It's, it's not complicated after that. The first year it's hard because you're flexing a muscle you've never flexed before. Mm -hmm. And then you get into, okay, wait a second. This is scalable. We can do this over and over again. So you had, um, because yeah, I mean, by that time, everyone had their lane. They knew exactly what their superpower was. They knew exactly what to focus on. And when everyone was doing that, you took specialization to the top, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you took the concept of specialization and everyone had their own thing. The client got a great experience and you guys were able to do 225 buyer transactions. Mm -hmm. So, so um, you went from when you met Dan, how many deals did you do? Did you say 14? 16. Yeah. 16 to 225. What was the time frame? How long did it take you to do that? So I joined KW, well, I joined KW and Dan's team in 2012, four years. Four years. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is incredible. I, I don't know if it, it's a record, but I'm sure it's got to be up there. So, so that's a great story. Now I want to talk about can you break down the lead generation? Because people are like, well, okay, that makes sense. I love Jen's story. Where did she get the business from? 
So we circle back around to listings, right? It's always the listing side. So we, the listings are always our driver of business. I mean, okay. that's just part of it. So we are a 55% list side, a 45% buy side company. So when we look at, you know, taking listings, that was the predominant, that was the predominant source of the leads on the buy side. So what would happen is um, sign calls, internet leads that would come through. That was part of it. Open houses. That's part of it. We also circle prospects. So right now is different than 2016. Clearly, sure. I think we could all agree that inventory yep. issues are different now. Now, a big source of our leads on our buy side is we're actually going and circle prospecting neighborhoods for our buyers to find them the property that's off market so that Love they're it. not having to compete. So we've got an influx of buyers that are really struggling to find something and they are now coming back around to the idea that they do need an agent. They need an agent because they cannot win on their own. Yeah. And so we've got a lot of inbound stuff coming in where we're like, okay, we can be the matchmaker. We can find you the perfect house. Yeah, no, that's so good. Um, and I and I asked you this before when you were coaching me is um, if you moved, right? I asked you this question. I said, if you, if you left um, where you're at, and you came to like a Michigan, you started over and there had no listings because the people listening to this is like, well, I don't have a big listing agent that I partner with. It's me. I'm by myself, Jen. So, so how would you start to, from a lead gen, uh, go out there and generate buyer business if they don't have listings to leverage? If they don't have listings to leverage, I mean, I think I would dive into, I'm understanding what the market is, right? I'm going to fast track my market knowledge wherever I go. So I'm getting involved in where whatever brokerage or team that I'm joining, I'm getting involved in there and I'm going to do open houses. I'm going to go mm -hmm. to a listing agent and say, what do I need to do? But I'm not just going to put a sign in the yard. I'm going to go in and I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to door knock COVID you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awareness yeah. of what's happening in the in the world right now. I'm going to door knock. I'm going to circle prospect the neighborhood. I'm going to put all the signs up, and I'm going to be really, really confident in what's happening in that neighborhood, so that anybody that comes in, I can help them whether they want to buy or sell. Wait a minute. Are you suggesting they actually prospect? I am. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy talk. So I love it. I love it. All right, cool. Now I want to get into lead conversion. You okay. have some great principles and some great processes and systems and beliefs here that I think will also change the way people view working with buyers. The, the thought right now across the industry, whether you agree with this or not, you know, as a buyer calls, you drop everything and you're racing to the house and you're showing them the property um, I think you guys do it a little bit differently, right? I think that, and, and so can you walk us through the buyer conversion process? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting now, um, over the course of the, the eight years that I've been on this team, it has evolved. I, I think that everyone goes through the period of time where they're like, yeah, I'll stop, drop and run yeah. into the house. And then you get to the point where you're like, hey, wait a second, there's a better way to do this, right? If we're going to work smarter, not harder. Yeah. So we do a buyer consult and it's a really um, easy tool to add. Some people call it a strategy session. And basically somebody comes, calls in and I am getting, I'm keeping them on the phone as long as I possibly can, right? We're asking a lot of questions. We're pretending that maybe our internet is a little bit slow that day. And we're trying to dig in and get some information from them to build rapport with them. And then we're going to do what we call a strategy session. And we're going to meet with the buyer and set them up for success. So the interesting piece in this from the last time you and I talked until now 
is there's always been this thought behind speed to lead, right? right. So the, the, from the time that the lead comes in until you communicate with that lead, that was the initial speed to lead. The interesting dynamic now with everyone using Zoom or Google Hangouts or whatever they're willing to use, you can actually get face-to-face with a buyer much sooner now. People are confident in technology. So that speed to lead just went from the call in or the email in to the phone call back, to getting them on the phone, to getting them in the consult. Now we're like, hey, we could do the consult right now. So smart. Are you available? And so you're getting face-to-face time with them almost immediately, which sends your conversion rates through the roof. That is so smart. So, so are the majority of the buyer consults or the strategy sessions over a zoom right now? They're over the, they're over zoom or they're over a phone call because even now we're so dialed in at this point to what's going on that we can do a really thorough consult on the phone. So the benefit of zoom is okay. We're face to face, right? It's, I can read body language. I can say, Hey, Brandon, there's like a little bit of a glare on your screen. Can you tell your screen? So if if you said that to me, I would adjust this, I would adjust it down. And now you can see my arms, right? Like you can see if I'm leaning forward, if I'm leaning backwards or whatever it is that I'm doing. You can build some rapport pretty quickly now through Zoom, but but interestingly enough, buyers now are so isolated mm. that they crave any type of interaction. So to keep them on the phone longer, to get them to do a Zoom, to do any of those things is much easier than it was. Great, great point. And I agree. I mean, I... I'm a huge believer that a face-to-face meeting changes everything. Now I'm saying a Zoom meeting changes everything because it's it's that interaction and we can build a human connection this way much better than you can over the phone. So I think that's super, super strong. Um, when do you, well, let me come back to that. What are you guys doing now to compete with multiple offers uh, to get your buyer's offer, to, to make it stand out to be the obvious choice? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I think first of all, we're communicating pretty heavily with the listing agents Um, and we've got a good reputation. And I think for those agents that are new agents, understand that that's easy to build and you can do it quickly. So making sure to communicate with the listing agent, we call and I'll say, Hey, Brandon, this is Jen Davis with Bolt Homes Group. Hey, I just want to reach out. Our buyers are getting ready to make an offer on one, two, three main street. You laugh. You're like, oh yeah, you're the you know 35th agent that's called me. Yeah. Awesome. Outside of price, what's important to your seller? I know what the price needs to be, right? In a multiple yeah. offer, I know what it needs to be. Yeah, we, we, we're pretty clear on where we've got to go to win, right? Yeah. That's within our fiduciary responsibility to our buyers. We absolutely. Know we know. Yeah. What I want to do is I want to cut to the chase and say, outside of price, what matters to your seller? The next thing is going to sound so simple and people are going to be like, of course, this is what you're going to say. We actually listen. Yeah. It is really frustrating for our listing agents on our team to get that call and they say, hey, they need post possession of 30 days or they need a closing date of April 10th. And then the buyer's agent writes in April 4th or no post possession. Well, you wasted my time, right? Yeah. Don't call me and ask me what you want to do and then not take the, the advice. So to set our offers apart, we are making connection with the listing agent. We are outside of price, making sure that we can, we can be impactful with our offers. They're clean offers. They clearly, the agent, the, the buyer's well-qualified. We're having the lender reach out to the listing agent and we're not bombarding them with phone calls because some, 
if you're my li- if you're the listing agent, hey Brandon, do you prefer a call or a text message? Right. You say text. Okay, I'm not going to call you again. Yeah. I, I'm also going to listen, but I'm going to have my lender say, hey Brandon, this is Aaron. I just wanted to let you know. I know Jen submitted this offer. Buyers are well qualified. I've worked with them in the past. Blah 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 blah. That's the key. I was because I was going to ask you that before. How are you partnering with your lender to help you win in this market? And this is what I'm, I'm spending so much time on with the agents at my company and in my coaching program. It's like you have got to deepen your relationship with your lender so that it's a tag team in this in this market. Because I'll tell you, as as a listing agent, primarily for the last 15 years of my career, when I get a call from a lender. You talk about standing apart. I mean, that is so big. I mean, it's massive. It's massive. And for all the agents listening out there, it goes for you too. If you're not talking to the lender before you accept an offer, I don't think you're, you're being you're doing your due diligence as a listing agent as well. I agree, and I think it's handling it on the phone. I mean, if I right. if, if I if I've not yet talked to you and I don't yet know that you like text messages. I'm calling you. I'm making a connection with you. And I've had people say, you know, well, what if the listing agent doesn't answer? Okay. Well, I mean, I might do a video. I might do a video and say, I was going to say the same thing. Right. Hey, Brandon, it's Jen. I just submitted an offer at one, two, three main street. Can you just confirm that you got it? I'm so excited to get the opportunity to work with you. The lenders may be reaching out, blah, 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 blah. I'm still doing something different than most agents would do. That's exactly right. I was going to say the same thing. And I'm, and we're having the lender do that too, is doing a, sh- a short little bomb bomb and texting. Uh, very, very cool. So so for people, uh, well, let me ask you this. If you went back and started all over again, okay, and you started a new team by yourself somewhere where you don't know, what advi- or what would you do differently or maybe advice you'd give to a brand new agent that's just starting out in 2021? I think a brand new agent, if I were starting out, I would look at how number one, knowledge trumps experience every time. Mm. It just does. People want you to be knowledgeable. So I would be an expert in my field. I would fast track my market knowledge and I would work harder than anyone else. I mean, that's always going to be my answer. I can, I can outwork anybody, right? If I'm new to the industry, I can do what I need to do. But I would look at it and I would think, okay, clearly we've got to lead with listings. I've got to, I've got to get in front of for sale by owners. I've got to get in front of expireds. I've got to do whatever it takes to get that listing so I have something to market. In the meantime, I'm going to market other agents' stuff. I'm going to see if I can do open houses. I'm going to see if I can share things on social media. But if I were going to build it, I would think I'm going to go list side. I'm going to get help with lead generation so that I have a big pipeline. I'm going to, well, I'm going to see if I can get listings, admin, lead gen, and then a showing agent. I don't know that I would go buyer's agent first if I were a rainmaker. I mean, clearly I was the recipient of getting to be the buyer's agent first. Knowing what I know now, though, I think that I would probably have a showing agent handling that stuff first, and I would manage those negotiations for a period of time. I love it. Jen, where do you think the market's going? Do you think we're heading towards a crash? Do you think that that's all hype and you think the market's going to continue to be a seller's market with interest rates keeping low? What is your prediction on the real estate market? So, you know, I think it's going to take a while. I think at some point it has to change. I mean, I don't think it can keep this pace forever. However, with real inventory concerns, I think it takes a long time to correct. So I, I don't think that it's like Q2, the bottom drops out of this year. But I do think as we look at, I mean, what was the number in September? 3 million Americans were behind on payments. Yep. Traditionally speaking, that's 1 million. So we're three times the amount of people that are behind on a payment. 
those foreclosures and short sales and those things, as they start filtering into our market and they start correcting the inventory issues, there's got to be a slowdown. When that happens, maybe 12 to 18 months, you know, the inventory is so limited right now that even if like a hundred foreclosures dropped into my market right now, it would take a while for that to correct pricing. Yeah, no, I agree what with do you. you. Think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I tend to agree with you 100%. I mean, we have to look at this unemployment. Um, we, we just had, don't know if it's an uh, artificial unemployment. People furloughed and behind on their payments because when we look at that, because in our mortgage company, we look at these stats all the time. And a lot of those people behind on their payments are on, on some type of mortgage relief program. So of the 3 million, what will be interesting, Jen, is to see how many of those people are on some type of mortgage relief program versus an authentic mortgage late uh, payment. You know what I mean? What do you think that is? I mean, if you were spitballing, what do you think that percentage is? Well, when they came out last year and, uh, and, and offered up all these different mortgage relief programs, I mean, tons of people, whether they needed it or not, jumped all over it. I'm under the belief that it's not as uh, dramatic as the media makes it out to be. I think it's probably, I, I, if I had to guess, probably 50-50. Mm -hmm. Probably 50-50. Because, you know, as as... COVID has absolutely impacted the world. At the same point, there's as many people having their best years ever in their businesses. And that's like this chicken or the egg, you know what I mean? Right. And so some people's businesses have launched because of COVID. Some mm -hmm. people's businesses have thrived because of the pandemic. Um, it's a very interesting time. And there's there's hype, there's rhetoric, and then there's there's the reality. And I don't I think the dust has to settle as we get past this election to really, really make a prediction on what's gonna happen. I think so too. And I think that some of the industries that are thriving, clearly real estate being one of them. Yeah. I mean, we're, we've all a lot of us have had our best year yet. That's right. But you look at it and you're like, that's also the the demographic of real estate agents, if you look at age and income levels and those types of things, it's not in the the age demographic of the people that lost their jobs, right? Like, right. like there, nobody in our industry, you know, we're, we're commission-based, so we didn't lose our jobs. It's not like those 18 to 24-year-olds that are in hospitality. Yeah. That's how I, I can't figure out how that play, part plays out because that those are in a large section of our home buyers, right? In that, yep. in that demographic. And you look at like our age demographic and you're like, well, those are mainly professional services, which really haven't taken much of a hit yet. Yeah. And so it'll be, you're right. And, and so it'll be interesting. I think that coming up in March, it's going to be a year since kind of mm -hmm. the big shutdown, um, we're past the craziness of the election. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, now you've got the, the vaccine out there. You know, I'm not talking about what people believe in or they don't believe in, but it's happening. So you got some herd immunity things happening. Um, so I think we need to wait a little bit. I think this spring mm -hmm. and into this summer, we'll, we'll, we'll tell the whole entire story of what things will look like, what the trajectory of the real estate market and the mortgage market and, and all these things that right now I think is speculation. I think it's a little too early to say, okay, well, we're headed, you know, because the media wants clicks, you know? So it's like, we're heading towards a huge crash. Armageddon's coming, freaking people out. Like it's another 2008, 2009. I don't think that we're, none of the facts suggest that we're headed towards that based on inventory. It's impossible. Home values are still soaring. And mm -hmm. when inventories are this low, 
I mean, it's, it's hard to say that that's where we're headed. It would take, that's what I mean by, I think it would take a while to correct the inventory issue where there wasn't this shortfall of, of, of inventory. And so you look at it and you're like, at some point values are, are going to settle. I mean, that's yep. at some point. And I think it takes longer to get there than potentially people initially thought because inventory was a problem a year ago. Right. And we have half the homes on the market that we had a year ago. And a year ago, we were saying that we had inventory. Problems. Exactly right. I mean, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, in Michigan, we have just over 30 days of inventory. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so that's a huge problem. And so I could talk to you for so long, just so you know, <laughs> I love this. It's so fun for me. What's the future hold for your company, your group, your team? What's the goal for 2021 and beyond? So 2021, um, last year we closed 500 units. The goal, or well, closed 538. The goal was 500. We surpassed that. So closing 600 units. Um, Dan, who is the founder of the company, is the OP of our market center and has some additional opportunity, I think, in some different regions that he's going to go pursue. Um, and we are going to really... At this point, I think we want to go deep with our clients. So when we look at, we've been transactionally based for a long period of time. I love it. Yeah. And so our database now is thriving. It's getting healthier every day and we're being intentional around it. So now it's, okay, how could we increase the the average sales price? How could we increase from being at, you know, 40 to 45% repeat referral business? How do we get that into the, in the fifties and sixties? How do we start doing some of the transactions, you know, a little bit smarter, right? How do we get some more repeat business? So smart. So smart. I just had my top agent at my firm um, on my podcast this earlier this week, and I just put it on YouTube today, she's doing $30 million a year, all referral, all referral, running your model. She's the rainmaker with, you know, admin heavy, super profitable, great business. Uh, and, And I really think that too many realtors are so focused on strangers. They forget about the people that they love, that they're in relationship with. And that's the business we all say we want, but we don't do anything to work those relationships. We're so transactional. It's amazing. It is. And I think, you know, we make strides and we look at things and then I'm like, okay, well, we can get better at this, right? We can, we can dive back in. There were the the years of the 182 to 225, there were some fallen soldiers, right? We and clean up some of that stuff. Well, I think, you know, agents are just so addicted to instant gratification. It's like, well, if I do an event for, you know, if I go do the event or I go do this, that, and the other thing, everyone says market to my database, I don't get an instant listing from that as, as I do if I go meet this expired listing. Yes, I understand, but things take time. So anyway, that's another conversation. Jen, this has been so much fun. How do people connect with you? Are you on Instagram, Facebook? Where, where do they connect? I am. So I am on Instagram very rarely. Um, okay. I think that the, I think that my username might be Jen Davis KW. I'm also not sure though. So Facebook is better. So it's just Jen Davis. You'll see me, you'll click on that. Um, I also run a buyer specialist mastermind group on Facebook. So if you click on that, um, we do tips and coaching tricks and all that kind of thing. On Can there. agents outside of KW participate? So, yeah. so I'll get a link, you guys, I'll put the link right uh, in the description in the show notes beneath this. Jen, you guys could tell she's a great leader, great trainer, great mentor. She's helped me out a lot too. So I'll put the link beneath there. Jen, this has been so much fun. Thank you so, so much. Jen, I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you too. And uh, I value our relationship so much and I'm excited to do more collaborations with you and your team moving forward. Me too. And I can't wait for you to get your Peloton so we can (laughs) race each other. (laughs) 
That's right. We're going to have a lot of competitions coming soon. (laughs) Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Brandon. Have a good day. You too. For more tips and advice on how you can grow your business, be sure to follow Brandon on YouTube and Instagram at Brandon Mulrennan.